0: Welcome to Forget the Wine, Reclaiming the Book Club. I'm Laura, my friend Madeline and I were sick of pop culture portraying book clubs as thinly veiled ladies' wine nights, so we started one of our own. In each episode, we'll discuss a different work of modern literary fiction. We're so glad you joined the club.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Forget the Wine. I'm Madeline, coming to you from Australia, but now relocated to New South Wales, back in a little town called Wyan Wyan in the hinterlands of Byron Bay. So very excited to be back in a bit warmer climate in Australia. And of course, joined today by Laura coming to us from Minnesota. Hey, Laura. Hey, holding down the fort here in Minnesota, super excited to discuss this one. This is one word this summary really hooked me right off the bat. Yes, amazing. So we're reading, we read, and we're going to speak about Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder. And let's kick off with the synopsis. Thanks, Laura. Sure. This is a summary from the
0: publisher. An ambitious mother puts her art career on hold to stay at home with her newborn son. But the experience does not match her imagination. Two years later, she steps into the bathroom for a break from her toddler's demands, only to discover a dense patch of hair on the back of her neck. In the mirror, her canine suddenly looks sharper than she remembers. Her husband, who travels for work five days a week, casually dismisses her fears from faraway hotels. As the mother's symptoms intensify and her temptation to give in to her new dog impulses peak, she struggles to keep her alter canine identity secret. Seeking a cure at the library, she discovers the mysterious academic tome, which becomes her Bible, a field guide to magical women, and meets a group of mommies involved in a multi-level marketing scheme who may also be more than what they seem. My impression was from the synopsis is this is going to be a magical realism story with some of the same tone as Bunny by Mona Awad, which I think we both really loved and discussed on this show so i was immediately hooked and excited to read this one but how did the premise strike you
1: i got the recommendation from you and just very briefly read it wasn't i didn't even read that in depth of the summary cuz lately i've been enjoying <laughs> getting your recommendations and having you do all the hard-hitting research on what we should read and then just going in blind, basically. So The Light Premise, I knew it was a little bit about female rage, motherhood, writing and creation, both like creative birth and um, physical birth. And I was like, oh, this is definitely a lot of themes that we've been really interested in and discussing a lot on, on our podcast. So I knew I would be drawn in by the themes and I also kind of went in blind with how much of the magical realism would be there but but yeah it was I was very interested when when I picked up the novel I guess my question to you Laura would be and we'll get into it did your expectations were they met were you excited as you read the novel did you get the same sort of like pull and draw as you did from the synopsis saying
0: I wish I did um but honestly it was really weird because this one, this book is a lot about a lot of really passionate emotions about female rage and feeling really trapped within motherhood and just strong emotions. But for some reason, it felt really flat and almost soulless to me. And I think some of that was intentional, uh, but it being so much about motherhood and womanhood societally and not about this particular mother or person that we were reading about, it was hard for me to connect. It felt more like an essay or a like philosophy paper or a thought experiment than an actual narrative that I could like live inside and be involved with. Um, For me, the moments when it worked best were when there was a specificity to the story. See, looking at an argument between this husband and wife that you get the sense happens every day, or you see why motherhood is actually so draining when the mother expresses that she can't get, like, two minutes to go to the bathroom by herself. The so novel spends a lot of time speaking in generalities, talking about mothers and children rather than this mother and this child, and it just lost me. It felt more like a series of, like, essays on feminism kind of hung around a story, like a really loose framework of a story, and, and that was annoying to me. I pulled one quote here that kind of exemplifies what I'm talking about. So this is says, No, the mother finally said, I think a working mother is perhaps the most nonsensical concept ever concocted. I mean, who isn't a working mother? And then add a paid job to it. So what are you then? A working, working mother? Imagine saying working father. And it almost felt like the author was trying to persuade us as readers of this rather than like share any particular insight about her specific characters. And it just felt a little bit shoehorned into the story. Um, and while I thought it was like an interesting extended metaphor, it didn't connect for me emotionally. But what about you?
1: I, I completely get where you're coming from. And actually that it's funny because that quote that you pulled really reminded me of a line from Sheila Hetty's motherhood, which we read um, where she yes. was, uh, she said something about as a woman, you had two choices to be a mother or to be a not mother Something along those lines. I'm not quoting exactly. But she did sort of use that same phrasing. But Sheila Hedy's book was, yeah, the tone, it wasn't really written in like a a fiction format. From what I recall, it was a very kind of reflective, autofiction style. And Night Bitch, I think it's sold as fiction, of course, because of all the magical realism elements. But then there were quite a few instances where it felt like I was being pulled into more of that auto-fiction trend that we've been seeing a lot in literature. So I think maybe that might be where some of you felt that disconnect from what you're describing. You were wanting to be pulled into like a narrative, like a, a plot, and a Story with magical realism and with these elements of like real family dynamics and emotions. And she touches on that sometimes, but she's all like toggling between that and more of like an auto fiction style. Like when I was reading it, I think I put in the notes because she was describing her setting as like a Midwestern home where she had gone to school. And I was like, I wonder if she went to the Iowa writers program. And she did. So I I remember being like, that makes a lot of that really tracks with me, because just from the style of the writing and the fact that she didn't give her character a name made it almost feel like a mix between a fictional narrative and autofiction.
0: Dude, yes. When you put that <laughs> in the document, I literally said the exact same thing as you did. I read it and I said, that track. This novel felt like something that you would read first chapter of to like a... Uh, one one workshop or whatever and it would get like flabbergasted people and bring so much praise and then that workshop product was expanded into the length of, of a novel that I could just like see
1: it happen. I know this is towards the end of our notes but I will ask you the question now what you thought of her narrative choice by not naming the ma- main characters. She instead her protagonist called either the mother or becomes night bitch the father is named the husband, her son is the boy. And then there's also a few characters like the working mother, the videographer. The only characters she names are is like Jen, some of the other mommies. And then as we see that plays into the theme, because they're all like all of the mommies are named Jen. <laughs> but what did you think of her narrative choice there of the unnamed characters?
0: Oh my gosh. I could not stand that. I I think it was obvious what she was going for. The whole book is kind of about the mother feeling reduced to her role as a mother and not being seen as or able to live as a full person. Outside of her motherhood, like, I get it. But to me, it was so clunky and just felt something that was, yeah, I put in here, I think, despite you brought up in my notes, I said it feels very writer's workshop to me. The self-conscious attempt to be literary with that, it did not work at all. It was super distracting. Did it bother you while you were reading it?
1: Well, yes and no, because I am very interested in the way that my writing has manifested itself a little bit when I've actually tried um, and tried to do something beyond just journaling. I think when you write auto fiction, it's sort of you are pulled into where you don't want to use your name and your own experience, but you somehow don't really want feel right giving your character a name because. So much of you is in that character. So that's where I was thinking that it kind of falls into that tone of auto fiction, the fact that she didn't give her protagonist a name because her protagonist is her, but she's still writing with that third person separation. So I actually was very intrigued with whether or not this would work because I've, some of my writing has come out in that style of like she and the woman, and like you're writing a first. Person personal experience, but you're writing in a third-person lens. So I was like, oh, it's interesting. How is she using it? And I sort of went with it because I want to be successful with my writing in that way. <laughs> but I think I was a lot more forgiving of the effect having done that. One, one novel I read where that style really worked, where the, the prot- protagonist was never named, was The Collection by Nina Leger. And that is, it's a very short, novel about this woman who creates a collection of penises basically like she sleeps mm. with different men and she has like it's kind of like if you've seen Sherlock Holmes and he has the memory palace this woman creates mm-hmm. like a memory palace of all these penises that she's encountered or peni. I'm not sure of the plural there but and that was a, a more creative cerebral piece of fiction I read where that worked but yeah in this one I can definitely see how you would find it a bit disarming and like constantly pulling you out of the story when you don't have like a character named the boy, the husband.
0: So much of it has to do with expectations too, I think. I think the marketing of this book, and it was heavily marketed before I read it, it had already been being adapted into like a major movie starring Amy Adams. So I was really expecting, and, and the novel is kind of billed as almost a literary thriller. And this, the cover, as you're referencing, is a woman's hand with painted red nails, like clutching a fist of steak. And so I think everything about the marketing, the packaging of the book kind of telegraphs that it has an edge to it, a sense of humor, is like a propulsive narrative. At least that was the impression that I got. And so when you are getting into this more reflective, auto-fiction style book, it's super disarming. And and maybe if I had gone in with the expectation that this is more like musings on modern motherhood, I, I would have been more open to it. But really, I just found myself wishing there was... There was a plot, there was some speed to the story and feeling kind of bogged down.
1: Okay, you described the cover, the American cover, which I just googled and it is different than the Australian cover, which is so fascinating to me. And I feel like my expectations would have been totally different as well. The Australian cover is a white background with black and pink writing. And it's just in the corner, there's a picture of of like an old portrait of a greyhound with a kind of snarling like a dog snarling but it's over a chaise lounge so it's like something from a you know, a portrait from the 1800s. And then I just looked at the American cover and it's totally different. It's like a red background. Like you said, it's a red nails holding a state and it's, yeah, I feel like that would have really changed my expectations too. As for, I really love discussing our impressions of this book because we had, I think it did color our reading. Cause like I said, I came in with basically knowing nothing about it in Australia. I've been super cut off from literary trends, literary marketing. I haven't walked into a bookstore in a, a while. And just like the covers, even the the font and the spacing of text in Australian books is different. There's a lot of very like a larger print, more space on pages in Australian books, I've noticed, than like American and British books. Do you want to talk about some of the digging into some of the themes of the novel, Laura?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think
1: one thing that we, and maybe
0: this is because I'm choosing our books, I'm in a rut here, but one theme that this novel shared with a lot of the books that we have been reading um, for this podcast has been that it's focused on feminine rage. And I think you and I both were struggling to call highlighting female rage, a literary trend. <laughs> but um, I think that it is It's just there's been a really big resurgence of, of people talking about it. I think you've put in some examples here, I think of like Gone Girl, um, Jennifer's Body, that movie with Megan Fox has been like really embraced by by Gen Z for some reason. Um, the movie Promising Young Woman, like it's explicitly about feminine rage and I think we just want to kind of want to talk about like what is the impact of this renewed focus on female rage I think both of us had mixed feelings like I know that I'm glad it's, it's more prevalent and that women are allowed to be portrayed as angry in pop culture more and more but it's also limiting in its own way because right now mainstream art about feminine rage and particularly about feminine rage around rejecting traditional structures like monogamy or motherhood has been taboo for so long that the popular work that we're reading now tends to be just kind of one note reactionary, which makes sense, right? Like it's a pendulum slim effect but it can lack some nuance. And I think in a lot of the books that we're reading, including in Night Bitch, the the rage, or in this case, the resentment of like a life lost to motherhood is the only defining characteristic about the women in these novels. They're explicitly books about female rage thematically and I'm just like looking forward to when we get to the point that fully rounded female characters like the lead in an Emily Henry rom romantic comedy book or whatever can have elements of of rage within her and she can be angry and a thousand other things. I'd like to get to more of a middle ground. It feels like for a little bit in the late 90s and early 2000s, mainstream media was really bad about including LGBTQ characters who their sexuality was just like one aspect of a nuanced character and, and personality. Usually if there was an LGBTQ character, it was the focus of the story was their queerness. Um, I think we've gotten a lot better about including diverse sexual adversity naturally in in narratives. And I'm looking forward to once we get to the point with women who, like, contain multitudes and one of those multitudes being anger. But what do you think about female rage as a trend? I hate saying that.
1: (laughs) It really is a trend. And because I think we came across it just in our, in the books we were drawn to and the styles of writing that we've been drawn to, contemporary novels, um, female authors. And that's why we really started noticing it. So like with this book, I, I actually Googled literary trend, female rage, and a few articles did come up. One one article in, published in February of this year defined the feminine rage genre as a collection of works that feature female characters predominantly written or produced by female authors and artists engaging in taboo or socially unexpected actions most often violent and then they categorized it into rage against the patriarchy or rage against men the second category is general violence and the final category that's self-inflicted violence so I found that to be quite interesting that some of these and, and actually Actually, as early as 2020 there were articles in the new york times about like female rage reading lists women writers give voice to their rage the my favorite article that was a little bit more i guess examine examining the the depth of this trend was the functions of female rage a website called freeze f r i e z e.com she was analyzing how women's anger has been fetishized in film and literature and she she says in this article, the past five years have been a boom time for selling the angry woman back to angry women, following the rise of the Me Too movement in 2017 and debates about women's rights globally. And then she goes on to say, there is now a sense that female anger is something to strive toward, that its ostensible root in reacting to injustice makes it inherently noble. I really like this writer. She goes on to argue the imposition of nobility on female anger doesn't ring true to me. There's something about being told your anger is good because you're being of use that seems to circle back to the original problem of women not being afforded the space to live without constant justification. I don't want to have to be of use to be allowed to exist. So she's arguing that female rage has been a bit fetishized and that that women's anger is inherently noble, like as compared to... A man's rage and anger, which can be quite like destructive, and um, yeah, a lot of destruction associated with it. And I would agree with this author that rage is rage and anger is anger. And I think sometimes we can use anger as a way to spark movement, to spark action, to fight against wrongs that have been done. But sometimes anger can be really toxic and destructive and and poisonous, if it's held on to. And we've seen how in female rage, the anger in the literature we've read has poisoned some characters and really fucked them up, like in Animal by Lisa Tadeo, that her rage just completely destroys, wipes out her overall identity and her ability to connect. So I think it's really interesting when we explore it in relation to these these trends, but it, it does make me kind of want to step back and ask, like, when is rage effective? Why is female rage more noble than male rage? And... Yeah, it just sparks a lot of questions. Even within the context of this
0: novel itself, I think there's questions. I think to some extent, a novel like Night Bitch, a novel like Animal, who on their face, I think, would say that they're making space for feminine rage, for acknowledging it. I think they can partake in fetishizing female rage a little bit. Um, as that author was saying. And it has to be reactionary and, and, and against some injustice. Like you said, it has to be noble in some way. And I think it's interesting too that even in these novels that address feminine rage imperfectly, I would say that these novels that we're discussing are seen primarily as like niche feminist works of art. They don't have audiences primarily female, which is interesting because male rage, like whatever, Walter White taking his revenge and, and breaking bad, that seems a universal experience. And, you know, feminine rage against feeling trapped as a mother is a niche women's issue. Obviously, that's nothing new or revolutionary to say, but um, I was just looking at like out of the top 10 best best-selling female authors, it's 20% male, 80% female split in their readership. Whereas for best-selling male author authors, it's like a 55-45 split. So women are so much more likely to read male perspectives than ma- males are to read female perspectives. And especially, I've just noticed anecdotally in my personal life, I think there's an uncomfortability from from men to face kind of digest work with female rage at the center, but you know in the case of night bitch i'm not sure that it would be the the shining example that i would want to put forward to the male audience
1: what we're talking about isn't new but it still really resonates with me to actually discuss it with you and and voice it and it's interesting that some of these books about female rage we've been reading of them kind of like raging against their circumstances are coming from really privileged perspectives of women who are economically stable, economically comfortable, have never had to sort of act out of desperation to survive and and face that sort of demeaning experience that could incite a lot of um, resentment and bitterness and rage. They're pretty well-educated for the most part. Yeah, generally white women who are voicing these narratives, not always, of course, but in in these instances of the books we've read. And it's interesting because I think in Night Bitch, she is simultaneously sort of railing against this life that she's put herself in, but also seems to be a little bit self-aware that she's ridiculous. I'll just read this quote from Night Bitch. Nothing was fine, despite how other people reasoned away her worries and anger, said that this was just how things were, that things would get better, that she really needed to calm down and not be so angry, that she really should be grateful and happy, that happiness was a choice, that she was privileged and bratty and wanted too much all at once. So she seems to be aware of this kind of feedback, but she's feels gaslit by it almost. This that's the sense I got from this narrator that she was like, everything is not fine. Everyone around me is just gaslighting me and not letting me feel the way I want to feel. And I think that is a valid perspective, but she's also so stuck in her own self imposed isolation. And she like I think she secretly like enjoys swirling in this sort of angst. I don't know. What is your impression of that, Laura? So, I had a hard time deciphering how much of that was attributable
0: to the fact that as Night Bitch is embracing her rage, embracing her uh, resentment of, of being trapped in motherhood, in her, that's her impression. She's like returning to her base state as an animal and learning to embrace. In the book, literally, she's transforming into a dog, she's growing a fist that becomes a tail, but also, you know, metaphorically, she's embracing like her. Her animal base instincts. So in those cases, it was it was very difficult for me to figure out if um, Night Bitch was self-centered and kind of like delusionally could only see her own point of view of things because he had, it was a reaction to her only focusing on her husband, and her child previously. And this was part of her transformation into an animal that was more attuned to just their instincts and like base level desires. Or if it was because she was a clueless human in addition to having all these other problems. That wasn't clear to me in the writing.
1: I would tend to agree with that. It is interesting with with some of these themes of feminine rage, how in those bodies of work that we've seen, it it has... Sometimes come back to very animalistic, primal stuff. Like in Bunny, obviously, it's very explicitly like they're transforming, using their powers to transform men into animals and sort of manifest animals. There was, and that was a little tied into the fairy tale stuff, of course. The novel Animal by Lisa Tadeo, she really taps into some of those like quote unquote really primal urges. I have sort of seen that primal, animalistic stuff appearing um, in themes. But obviously, Night Qu- bitch took it to another level with the transformation into an animal and her her physical acting out as an animal.
0: And some of that stuff, where well, we really get into the kind of viscera of <laughs> turning into a dog, <laughs> is the most effective stuff in the entire book for me. I think the moments where you would like cringe and and think that that's gross, like she was feeling urges to wag her tail when she was feeling joyful or to like just put her face down right in a plate of Chinese food and eat directly from the plate. I love when we were kind of getting those moments that were playing between the human world and the, the dog world and her embracing her dog desire. She, when she's yeah. seeing the first symptoms of being a dog emerge, I, there's really funny passages where she's Googling different combinations of like human with dog teeth. And then they describe kind of the gross parts of it really, really well and elegantly in kind of a delicious way too. So this is just a passage about her tail coming in. She pressed the spot at the base of her spine with two fingers and flinched at the pain, then twisted around again to examine it in the mirror, and, when she couldn't get a close enough look at it, retrieved a hand mirror, which provided enlightenment as to the nature of the bump. Then opted to take a picture of it with her phone, only to find a blurry red mask on the screen after repeated tries. It's just enough planted in the real world that I think that those pastures
1: are kinda of fun. And they were the ones that got inspired more of a reaction in me, like more of an excitement and an engagement with the writing for sure. Like that the stuff with the tail actually made me feel a little bit sick. I was like, Well, oh. like <laughs> I'm not generally squeamish with like blood and guts and gore, but for some reason the the body doing things outside of our control and the body doing mysterious things that we don't understand that part of it was a little bit like, like just got to me, <laughs> which is, I think, the kind of writing that we enjoy is the writing that stimulates a response. And when she's roaming the neighborhood and, and turning a bit bloodthirsty like killing small animals killing the bunny the actual like physical manifestation of that violence and that internal rage and simmering rage at her life and her lifestyle sort of coming out in this very physical thing where she just wants to kill like the little animals around her and do you want to that was another scene that i know had a big impact on
0: on you do you want to get into that
1: <laughs> yeah, one of the questions I had with that was: Was she sort of going after these smaller ant? Like she kills a bunny. We'll talk about her cat. <laughs> she kills like a, I think a raccoon at some point. She just kills all these little rodenty animals in her neighborhood. And one of the questions I had was: For women who have that kind of simmering rage and that that animosity and anger and that sort of frustration with the circumstances in which they're in, how can they get out that aggression without fear of being harmed themselves. Like I think sometimes in my personal experience, some of the men I know like who have issues with anger and rage will go out and like get into fights and, you know, get get into physical altercations when they're in a place of that deep pain with other men. Um, or, you know, even worse, I think we see that at other aspect of like domestic violence where men have unresolved anger issues or have a lot of unresolved emotional issues about their circumstances. Whereas women, if they act out in that way, there is a bigger threat of them being harmed back, if that makes sense. And maybe I'm opening up a bigger debate, I don't know. But there is always that extra fear of being physically dominated or overpowered so it brought up that question of like is she turning into the sort of animalistic predatory thing so she can kill something containable like kill something innocent in comparison that won't be able to fight back or harm her back that was one of the questions that came up for me in that sort of aspect
0: i think that unfortunately some of those we had some of those same questions because the metaphor is muddled and it's not clear in the novel i don't think this is like a choose your adventure than the, the author wanted it to, you know, have it be up to reader's interpretation. I think that it's just a little bit, the metaphor is contradictory in some places and confusing, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of embracing her animal instincts. Um, The dog is always affectionate to her husband and her son, which she resents so deeply. And those are the two figures that her anger is, is really focused on. So to your point, yeah, it could absolutely be a comment on like, well, women have to Displace that anger uh, onto something smaller because of you know physical limitations or whatever. I, I it's not totally clear in the in the novel whether she's just killing these small animals based on canine instinct or if it's connected with the rage. I think it's muddy.
1: I agree, and it is kind of it, there is a deep catharsis in her description of taking the life from these living creatures when she describes the sensation of like breaking their spine and. And we could talk about the cat. I think for me, that was a really disturbing image because it was the family pet. And obviously there's a deep emotional connection and she kills it in a really graphic, graphic way where she, I think she hacks into it and splits its stomach open with a knife and pulls out its organs while it's still alive. Is that, am I remembering that right? Yeah. In the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, which is a very cruel way to kill something. That was, I think, the part that disturbed me was that she didn't just want to kill it and like break its neck or, you know, cut its throat in ways that would maybe be obviously not, uh, not painful, but like to pull out a uh, living thing's organs as it's living and breathing still. And experience that, like, that living things last moments of consciousness are horror, especially coming from, like, I know it's just a cat, but that was, like, the cat's caretaker. So that was, I think, what disturbed me the most about her killing the cat. Not the fact that she did it, but just the way in which she did it. And then when her son comes in and (laughs) and sees her with this animal... And he was like, get kitty, the boy screeched, his blood rising from the scent of death and night bitch sank even deeper into worry. So I was like, this is like such an interesting thing because this is in men who, because oftentimes a lot of men are like the serial killers who we learn about who kill animals at a young age or men, you know, killing the rodents and cats is like a big sign that there's something really wrong. <laughs> So what did you think of this scene, Laura? Oh, uh, I'm deciding
0: if I want to say, but I think, you know, this book, when, when I read it, it was, when I started it, it was sold to me as a horror book from, you know, some of the captions on the back, some of the the cover art and the the quotes about the novel, that it was kind of disturbing and animalistic. It didn't make sense to me that... This whole book is about motherhood, how much she resents her son, is felt limited, resents her husband's lack of help. Those are the same reasons in the book that she resents the cat. Like it's just always there, not contributing and, and needing something from her. And I felt like thematically in this book, her attack should have been after the child. She and the child always have this like incredibly special bond when she's a a dog um, more so than when she's a mother and that wasn't that didn't jive thematically with the rest of the book for me but overall the like kind of gross horror sections of the book to me that were most shocking um, I thought that was the best writing in the book because Mm -hmm. it was actually describing a scene and an action and it didn't get bogged down in like all this analysis It was immediate and there was like, they introduced some fun, absurd elements to it. Like the mother in this case is trying to figure out how she's going to tell her husband when he gets back from his business trip that the cats died. And she's like, oh, maybe I'll just tell him I dropped a heavy pot of water on it when I was cooking. Like it's just dealt with in such a matter of fact way that it's um, absurd and, and kind of a fun change in tone in this book but overall it felt like a half measure to me this book is in between like like I said a a set of essays on feminism and like a horror book where we're really going to get into
1: things yeah and I guess that's where for me it sort of comes and we can talk about that theme of motherhood a bit more now like it kind of comes back to that it did feel like auto fiction to me because she's investigating her relationship with her son and she's her third person narration helps distance herself so she can kind of examine and see that relationship but simultaneously she's lost within it like when she's describing the scenes of trying to put him to bed and trying to take him to play group and be so present with him is such a chore and it doesn't she has like some nice afternoons with him and and we get the su- sort of sunny like happy moments as well but overall and i think the author might not have come to terms with this and that's why there's the disconnect she does she she has a deep like primal biological urge to protect and care for her son but she also feels very trapped and stifled and has no desire to be present with her son. It's a very interesting, and I think part of that disconnect in the narrative, and this is a big leap, so just my personal opinion, I think that's coming from the writer herself. Like the like deep, deep primal love that she has for her own child. But also, she's trying to re- reconcile this feeling of being trapped. So I think that's coming from the writer, which is a huge assumption. But that was what I concluded, like you were saying with some of the muddled metaphor and the confusion of her displacement of of rage. yeah, one hundred percent. it just it just doesn't commit or stick the landing. There's one one book that I think really committed to a tone of that, The Lost Daughter, I think it's called, by Elena. It's one of Elena Ferrante's books. It's the one where- Yeah, The Lost Daughter. Yeah. It's that theme of like a mother who is an intellectual, a writer, a creator, and she actually leaves her, she has two young daughters and she actually leaves them for several years. When they're quite small children Uh she just straight up abandons her family and then she's always in turmoil of it so she eventually comes back but there's always forever and ever a rift in her relationship with her daughters that i i actually really hated the film adaptation of it i thought it wasn't really uh, i i didn't really like it hate is a strong word i didn't really like the film adaptation i thought the book was much better you you guessed at that. Do you disagree? I haven't re- I haven't read the book, so I'm coming out as a you know
0: <laughs> a dumb Hollywood idiot there. But I love the movie like deeply, and think that it is a perfect thing for you to bring up in comparison to this book because I think that film I can only speak for the film reckons with the guilt of resenting that you don't really get to live life for yourself or be your own person. Um, once you've transitioned into motherhood is so beautifully reckoned with and looked at as a really whole feeling. And it's looked at with, you know, anger included and and longing and love and just really beautifully considered. It's it's simplified down to almost not have a huge impact in Night Bitch.
1: The movie is good, but I liked the book better. And maybe that's why I had some issues with the movie. But you're right. It, both of the, the works are true to that theme. And, they, and it's, and it sticks, it sort of like sticks with it. It's There's not a conflict coming from the writer. And it might be because, you know, that is a novel and it's very much rooted in fiction. Whereas like we've talked about, although it's not addressed in any of the marketing and in, that I could find in any of the interviews, I think Night Bitch is sort of like a mix of genres here. Again, huge, huge assumption on my part, but <laughs> it could be very wrong. But this is what a podcast is for, is just, you know, wildly saying your opinions and putting them out into the universe. Yeah. (laughs) And there's just one line that stuck with me from Night Bitch when she's spending summer afternoons with her son. She would always have that moment and many others locked inside her. The power of ultimate creator. I made you and I destroy you as well. I am your entire world. And then also I am the person you leave behind. I will always be with you. You will never understand me. So I thought that was I I I liked that statement about motherhood. I will always be with you, you will never understand me. Because I felt like as a child, that is how I feel about parent like my parents, that they're always with me, but I can never fully know them or understand them because I will only ever see them as like a mother and a father. And the always be with you part is like even after death, like you hold on to the emotions and the connections you have with your parents. So I thought that was a really nice kind of statement. I agree. I think that there's moments of
0: really beautiful writing in this. Like I don't say this to be dismissive, but I think this could be edited down into a really beautiful novella or short story that does live kind of more in that magical realism space. I think some of the writing here is is really strong. It's just that there's long passages in between that either are spinning the the wheels and kind of repeating the book's thesis over and over back to the audience in between the parts that are impactful
1: yeah i would i would tend to agree with that and i think that part of that theme as well we can talk about maybe some of the other mothers and the role of art in the in the narrator's life because i think some of that too her this this character in this novel, to me, was very obsessed with needing to be recognized and validated and seen, which is a total normal human <laughs> human thing, where like she didn't feel appreciated by her husband. That was a huge theme in, in what we saw. She felt isolated from the other mothers, we can talk about a little bit. And then she, we only see her really be happy and start to sort of come out of her rage when she starts being a bit idolized by the mothers and starts to be seen as like an artist again. So there was a lot of like ego sort of incorporated into the protagonist that I think was not written with awareness by the writer, I think it just manifested in the writing. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. And that's how I felt about it too, was that it was just in this in-between space kind of spelling out what its thesis was to the reader, but but not showing it.
1: I, I guess the moments where I became frustrated with this narrator were the moments where she is overthinking and feeding her inner rage and like lost in that kind of cycle of thought, which yeah, I felt was like very different from the magical realism side of actually turning into a dog. Like there's a scene where she's there's a passage or a part of the novel where she's starting to go out and just like her hair is all crazy and her clothes are all crazy. And she's projecting this super aggressive energy. And like on one page, she she says in her mind, I dare you to talk to me. She told them with her mind and they never dared. Of course they wouldn't because you're putting out this energy of like, do not fucking talk to me. Like, I dare you to talk to me. Like who's going to come up and talk to you if you're... (laughs) doing that so I felt like she was writing that to be like society didn't want to accept it blah 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 but I am I read it as like no like people were just following their intuition and they were reacting to the energy that you were putting out at them so those were the moments where I became a little frustrated with the narrator <laughs> no I agree I think there's there's a lot of that that it's like how
0: much of this is a you problem and how much of it is societal But some of the parts where I did connect more with the mother as a main character was she kind of connects with this group of other mothers. She's really interested in kind of creating community around her. And the other mothers that she meets up with at the park are involved in kind of a multi-level marketing company where they sell herbs. And this, um, her interactions with the other mothers is one of the parts of the book that like airs way more on the absurd side. There's also um, a pack of dogs that she meets up with at the park who she suspects might be the alter egos of the mothers because one of the dogs smells exactly like the same strawberry shampoo that one of the mothers uses. It's kind of a strong contrast in tone um, with the rest of the book, because it's so um, kind of absurd and, and fantastical. Did you like this part, or did you find it tedious?
1: I liked that part, but so I liked when the dog, the dogs appeared on her front lawn, and she says, "Yes, it was a ridiculous sort of situation, but truly, her heart thudded with a horrible terror, a horrible delight." So I thought that part of it was quite interesting, and I did think that the MLM stuff with the mommies was really interesting and well written. <laughs> and Well, my mom's name is Jenny. So I was kind of like, oh, this hits close to home when all the moms were named Jen. <laughs> but oh, funny, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought that the MLM scene where they are having this meeting to t- to sell the herbs and there's a lot of like the the mommies like connecting. Um, and it's a- almost like a a church like spiritual like where you're going to be the best version of yourself if you have this and if you sell these in your life like you'll spread the the gospel in a way it was it was really well done and there was one piece of dialogue in that scene too where strawberry jen tells the narrator that she's given up she gave up like a really good job in PR for motherhood And that conversation really reminded me of a character from the show, The Unbreakable, Kimmy Schmidt, where there's another mom who's in conflict with a character and she says, maybe I'm trying to destroy you because I'm trying to channel my energy. I have a master's degree from this Ivy League and this morning I picked out dog stationery. And just the sort of like craziness of a woman who's not using her full intellectual capacity. (laughs) so like in night bitch she has this conversation with strawberry jen and then strawberry jen just goes walks away and doesn't speak to anyone and staring that blank mommy stare for a time from the corner of the living room as she distractedly chewed a carrot stick so i thought separately these two things were really interesting and fun and um, I want I, I enjoyed those scenes, but then they're never connected. Like those do- the pack of dogs isn't the mothers in the end. And also like the MLM stuff is just touched on in that part. And then, you know, Jen helps her with her art career, but it was just sort of like standalones. And, and I thought separately there could have been such potential for it. I totally agree. It is a complete
0: different novel in tone and and character and mood just kind of shoves into the story of of Night Bitch. And actually, I'm going to put you on one of my favorite genres of books ever to read when I just need to like relax and shut my brain off. It's like a very light suburban satire that is like makes the most obvious observations like all suburban moms drive like Mm -hmm. military vehicles and isn't that ridiculous but a couple of my favorites are Class Mom who's about a woman who's like involved in the PTA of her elementary kids class and then a new one is Community Board which is about like next door posts from people in their um, neighborhood like ratting each other out and both are amazing and that was what the tone of this whole section with the mommies was it was kind of like has that sort of condescending towards women tone that some of these suburban satires have that it's like, oh, dumb women are sucked into MLM. Can you believe how meaningless their life is that they get sucked into this? It has a little bit of that acidity, um, but it's still like pretty light and bubbly. And it's just so different from the really like literary feel of the the parts of the book that are specifically about motherhood.
1: Yeah, and I think part of that was... The author's, again, sort of projects into her character. Her character simultaneously wants to be included with these mommies and sees them as like, they're doing such a better job at being moms than she is. But simultaneously, she really relishes being different. And she creates the self-imposed isolation on herself by not trying to connect with it and and wanting to feel better than them because she is an artist and she has these art friends and who are really successful and she went to this really prestigious writers program maybe um, so she so i think that is written into the character in a way that like is almost kind of an ego fantasy because then the moms are like oh my gosh you're so boho and cool and she's able to be invited to this party and observe them but be included at the same time, which is what she really wants, which is a theme in Bunny as well, like that kind of simultaneous desire to be included in a part of it, but also seeing it with a bit of disdain and contempt. I really enjoyed the scene as well when there's that backyard performance where the artist does a, a sort of like becomes Night Bitch in her backyard as a performance for all these moms but again it's kind of a fulfillment fulfillment of an ego fantasy with her being center stage and being a performer but i thought this the description of that scene of how the mothers keep getting more and more drunk and like react to the performance in different ways and like run to their cars and like fall over in their seats and like eat the cupcakes with a lot of ferocity I was a lot more interested in that element as well of like collective female energy <laughs> and what happens when you get a bunch of repressed moms in a room with a lot of alcohol. <laughs> um, Me
0: too. Let's ex- let's explore female joy and like female silliness.
1: I, I was I was with you. I wanted to be there. Yeah, and I'll just say one like quick because I thought it was kind of interesting one quick personal anecdote when I was working in an outback pub in Queensland it was a really remote area like a town of 150 people and then it was close to another bigger town that had a few thousand but a lot of like farming properties and, and very remote and the pub put on a male strip show they actually got the I think it was like the Sydney hot shots or something but a bunch of male strippers came and did a performance one night and Oh my God, working behind the bar, serving these women after this show was like, I kept making eye contact with my friend who was behind the bar with me. Like we kept making eye contact, like, should we be scared? Are we like going to be okay? Like these women are like, they, it was just this kind of like release of sexual tension for them. They were like, more tequila shots. Ah!" Like it was more potent than anything I witnessed from like aggressive men in bars. It was like more forceful. And um there were even some men like watching sports games in the pub who were like at first really like, oh look at all these chicks. And then they were like, we've got to get out of here. <laughs> like this is too much for us, to handle. Female energy.
0: It's really female powerful. Female energy, man. It's powerful. It has to be respected.
1: Yeah. So um so that was it. that scene with the moms in the backyard really, it, it kind of touched on that similar energy I've experienced uh, before, <laughs> which was unexpected to say the least. And you know, everything was fine. They didn't jump the bar or anything. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: lived. <laughs> yeah. I loved the passage at the end about the performance. I think there were passages that were like borderline poetry to read. It was really beautifully written and, and lyrical. But as the ending of this work, it didn't totally click for me. I just don't think that the pacing worked. It didn't ratchet up the level of chaos. Gradually, it kind of went from being relatively grounded in reality to, like you said, they're at this backyard party and there are some women who are kind of like transforming into their, their basal animal selves because of this work of performance art. It gets like extremely heightened and surreal. Um, And Mm. also throughout the entire novel, the character of the mother is adamant that she's an artist. Um, And that's kind of her defining characteristic. And to your point, that's what in her mind separates her and makes her better than the other mothers is that she's, she has the like heart and head of an artist or whatever. Throughout the novel, she's referencing doing a piece of performance art that is, connecting motherhood and dogs and she just keeps talking about how she wants to do something connecting those and this is that culminating art piece we're meant to understand but I don't think that we get what the message of the piece is ever like it never fully crystallizes for the mother and so it's never communicated to us it's just like a art piece about motherhood and dogs Without anything beneath it, but did it work as an ending for you?
1: It, it did and it didn't. I think I'll just read the. I think this might be the last line. Um, at the end of her performance, she says, "Here was a woman who now knew that life unfolded through mystery and metaphor, without explanation. Who looked upon her perfect son in front of her, a person she had made with her strongest magic, standing right there in a blinding spotlight, as if he weren't a miracle, as if he weren't the most impossible thing in the entire world." It's, it's interesting because like that is a beautiful piece of writing I think it touches on those themes of creation of what it means to be an artist creating art and an art like and creation of a human which is something that you know it's a huge difference between like a what a, what a gendered woman and a gendered man can do to create life and to create a fully formed human is I think a miracle like, when you really think about it, it's pretty insane. I felt like that line is really beautiful, but it is, it just, it's the, I think you're right when you're saying the metaphor's a bit mixed and the novel's a bit messy because I, I, she, they put in so many different elements and different pieces. And I, I was happy for the mother in the end that she kind of achieved her, her art. And that she felt this deep connection to her son and was able to see him as like a beautiful thing and a beautiful part of her life. but the way the novel led up to that moment didn't really like you're saying it didn't really organically lead up to that. It was sort of just like a final scene. I think they wanted to put in all of these really interesting pieces, and she is a good writer and she wants they wanted to include all these different beautiful pieces of her writing, but they didn't really think about the form of the novel overall. And I'm really curious how they'll translate it to film.
0: Me too. I cannot wait for that movie. Yeah, I think this is not, you know, not an author that I wouldn't read again. I think I would pick up, you know, Rachel Yoder's next book. But do you have any final thoughts before we close on whether we'd recommend this one or not? Because I think we're fairly mixed.
1: Yeah, I I think we've touched on most of everything I did. What I liked about this novel was that it, it had a, In spite of its kind of mixing of metaphors, it had a pretty consistent tone, I thought. I liked the author's kind of cerebral desire, her, her conflict between being the observer and being observed, like her conflict between wanting to be an artist and observe the world around her, but also want to be included in that world and participate actively in that world. So I... The, it's It stayed with me, like the themes and some of the impressions of the novel. Like I didn't just put it down and forget about it. That at the same time, it almost makes you wonder if the story will be more successful for both of us, a visual medium, because they can't spend so much time in her head as we did in the book. Does that make sense?
0: hundred percent. I think, yeah, those were the parts that worked for me the best um, in the book or what will translate best to the screen is those moments of the mother giving in to the side of her that is Night Bitch, giving in to those animalistic feelings and desires. I think that's going to, like, you're going to be able to see a physical transformation and on screen, and I think that'll be, it'll be cool. I hope the tone of of it isn't too self-serious, because I think this is a fun concept. I mean, like you said, this book sticks with you. I think the image of, like, Night Bitch running through her suburban neighborhood at night, like, kind of through the, well-manicured lawns under the stoplight and streetlights. That really was a crisp image for me that I liked taking in. Like there was nothing unpleasant about reading this book. Uh, it was like a three out of five for me. I think it was just because the the plot had so much potential and the writing had so much potential because it was strong too. I just wanted um,
1: more from it and for it to kind of tie together more than it did. I agree with your hope that it's not too much of a self-serious film. and. It makes me wonder how the creation of the main character will come across in film as well, because I think in the novel, we have the privilege of seeing everything from her eyes and her perspective. So we're not so contemptuous or annoyed by her very much self-obsessed viewpoint and kind of egocentric viewpoint, I would say. It makes me wonder how that will come across in film as well. If anyone can pull it off, it's Amy Adams. Yeah, I'm ready to be their
0: opening day. But I'm glad we read this one. Thanks for discussing it with me.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad we we and I'm glad we got to talk a little bit more about that literary trend of female rage, too, because it's not going to be the last time we see it. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for joining me t- today, Laura, and happy reading, everybody. Thank you. Happy reading.